Welcome to this Uvula audio presentation of The Mound by H.P. Lovecraft, Volume 2. When morning came, cloudy though not threatening morning, the whole village turned out to see me start across the dust-blown plain. Binoculars showed the lone man at his usual pacing on the mound, and I resolved to keep him inside as steadily as possible during my approach. At the last moment, a vague sense of dread oppressed me, and I was just weak and whimsical enough to let Grey Eagle's talisman swing on my chest in full view of any beings or ghosts who might be inclined to heed it. Bidding au revoir to Compton and his mother, I started off at a brisk stride, despite the bag in my left hand and the clanking pick and shovel strapped to my back. Holding my field glass in my right hand and taking a glance at the silent pacer from time to time. As I neared the mound, I saw the man very clearly and fancied I could trace an expression of infinite evil and decadence on his seamed, hairless features. I was startled, too, to see that his goldenly gleaming weapon case bore hieroglyphs very similar to those on the unknown talisman I wore. All the creature's costume and trappings bespoke exquisite workmanship and cultivation. Then, all too abruptly, I saw him start down the farther side of the mound and out of sight. When I reached the place about ten minutes after I set out, there was nobody there. There is no need to relate how I spent the early part of my search in surveying and circumnavigating the mound, taking measurements and stepping back to view the thing from different angles. It had impressed me tremendously as I approached it, and there seemed to be a kind of latent menace in its two regular outlines. It was the only elevation of any sort on the wide-level plain, and I could not doubt for a moment that it was an artificial tumulus. The steep side seemed wholly unbroken and without marks of human tenancy or passage. There were no signs of a path toward the top, and, burdened as I was, I managed to scramble up only with considerable difficulty. When I reached the summit, I found a roughly level elliptical plateau about 300 by 50 feet in dimensions, uniformly covered with rank grass and dense underbrush and utterly incompatible with the constant presence of a pacing sentinel. This condition gave me a real shock, for it showed beyond question that the old Indian vivid though he seemed, could not be other than a collective hallucination. I looked about with considerable perplexity and alarm, glancing wistfully back at the village and the mass of black dots which I knew was the watching crowd. Training my glass upon them, I saw that they were studying me avidly with their glasses, so as to reassure them I waved my cap in the air with a show of jauntiness which was far from what I was feeling. Then, settling to my work, I flung down pick, shovel, and bag, taking my machete from the ladder and commencing to clear away the underbrush. It was a weary task, and now and then I felt a curious shiver as if some perverse gust of wind arose to hamper my motion with a skill approaching deliberateness. At times it seemed as if a half-tangible force were pushing me back as I worked, almost as if the air thickened in front of me, or as if formless hands tugged at my wrists. My energy seemed used up without producing adequate results. Yet for all that, I did make some progress. 
By afternoon I had clearly perceived that toward the northern end of the mound there was a slight bowl-like depression in the root-tangled earth. While this might mean nothing, it would be a good place to begin when I reached the digging stage, and I made a mental note of it. At the same time I noticed another and very peculiar thing, namely that the Indian talisman swinging from my neck seemed to behave oddly at a point about 17 feet southeast of the suggested bowl. Its gyrations were altered whenever I happened to stoop toward that point, and it tugged downward, as if attracted by some magnetism in the soil. The more I noticed this, the more it struck me, till at length I decided to do a little preliminary digging there without further delay. As I turned up the soil with my trench knife, I could not help wondering at the relative thinness of the reddish regional layer. The country as a whole was all red sandstone earth, but here I found a strange black loam less than a foot down. It was such soil as one finds in the strange deep valleys farther west and south, and must surely have been brought from a considerable distance in the prehistoric age when the mound was reared. Kneeling and digging, I felt the leathern cord around my neck tug harder and harder, as something in the soil seemed to draw the heavy metal talisman more and more. Then I felt my implements strike a hard surface, and wondered if a rock layer rested beneath. Prying about with the trench knife, I found that such was not the case. Instead, to my intense surprise and feverish interest, I brought up a mold-clogged, heavy object of cylindrical shape, about a foot long and four inches in diameter, to which my hanging talisman clove with glue-like tenacity. I cleared off the black loam. My wonder and tension increased at the boss reliefs revealed by that process. The whole cylinder, ends and all, was covered with figures and hieroglyphs, and I saw with growing excitement that these things were the same unknown tradition as those on Grey Eagle's charm and on the yellow metal trappings of the ghost I had seen through my binoculars. Sitting down, I further cleaned the magnetic cylinder against the rough corduroy of my knickerbockers and observed that it was made of the same heavy, lustrous metal as the charm. Hence, no doubt, the singular attraction. The carvings and chasings were very strange and very horrible. Nameless monsters and designs fraught with insidious evil, and all were of the very highest finish and craftsmanship. I could not at first make heads nor tails of the thing, and handled it aimlessly until I spied a cleavage near one end. Then I sought eagerly for some mode of opening, discovering at last that the end simply unscrewed. The cap yielded with difficulty, but at last it came off, liberating a curious aromatic odor. The sole contents was a bulky roll of yellowish paper-like substance inscribed in greenish characters, and for a second I had the supreme thrill of fancying that I held a written key to unknown elder worlds and abysses beyond time. Almost immediately, however, the unrolling of one end showed that the manuscript was in Spanish, albeit the formal, pompous Spanish of a long-departed day. In the golden sunset light I looked at the heading and the opening paragraph, 
trying to decipher the wretched and ill-punctuated script of the vanished rider. What manner of relic was this? Upon what sort of discovery had I stumbled? The first words set me in a new fury of excitement and curiosity, for instead of diverting me from my original quest, they startlingly confirmed me in that very effort. The yellow scroll with the green script began with a bold, identifying caption and a ceremoniously desperate appeal for belief in incredible revelations to follow. Relacion de Ponfilo de Zamacona y Núñez Hidalgo de Lurca en Asturias, tocante al mundo sotera neo de Quinan, ADMDXLV. En el nombre de la Santísima Trinidad Padre, Gio e Espíritu Santo, tres personas distintas e un solo. Dios verdadero y de la Santísima Virgen, Nuestra Señora. Yo, Ponfilo de Zamacona, hijo de Pedro Guzmán Zamacone Hidalgo, y de la Doña Inés Alvarado y Núñez de Luarca en Asturias. Juro para que todo que deco está verdadero como sacramento. I paused to reflect on the portentous significance of what I was reading. The narrative of Ponfilo de Zamacona in Nunez, gentleman of Luarca in Asturias, concerning the subterranean world of Quinan, A.D. 1545. Here surely was too much for any mind to absorb all at once. A subterranean world? Again, that persistent idea of which filtered through all the Indian tales and through all the utterances of those who had come back from the mound. And the date? 1545? What could this mean? In 1540, Coronado and his men had gone north from Mexico into the wilderness, but they hadn't turned back in 1542. My eye ran questingly down the open part of the scroll, and almost at once seized on the name Francisco Vasquez de Coronado, the writer of this thing clearly was one of Coronado's men, but what had he been doing in this remote realm three years after his party had gone back? I must read further, for another glance told me what was now unrolled was merely a summary of Coronado's northward march, differing in no essential way from the account known to history. It was only the waning light which checked me before I could unroll and read more, and in my impatient bafflement, I almost forgot to be frightened at the onrush of night in this sinister place. Others, however, had not forgotten the lurking terror, for I heard a loud distant hallowing from a knot of men who had gathered at the edge of town. Answering the hail, I restored the manuscript to its strange cylinder, to which the disc around my neck still clung until I pried it off and packed it in my smaller implements for departure. Leaving the pick and shovel for the next day's work, I took up my handbag and scrambled down the steep side of the mound, and in another quarter hour was back in the village explaining and exhibiting my curious find. As darkness drew on, I glanced back at the mound I had so lately left, and saw with a shudder that the faint bluish torch of the nocturnal squaw ghost had begun to glimmer. 
It was hard work waiting to get at the bygone Spaniard's narrative, but I knew I must have quiet and leisure for a good translation, so reluctantly saved the task for the later hours of the night. Promising the town folk a clear account of my findings in the morning and giving them an ample opportunity to examine the bizarre and provocative cylinder, I accompanied Clyde Compton home and ascended to my room for the translating process as soon as I possibly could. My host and his mother were intensely eager to hear the tale, but I thought they had better wait till I could thoroughly absorb the text myself and give them the gist concisely and unerringly. Opening my handbag in the light of a single electric bulb, I again took out the cylinder and noted the instant magnetism which pulled the Indian talisman to its carven surface. The designs glimmered evilly on the richly lustrous and unknown metal, and I could not help shivering as I studied the abnormal and blasphemous forms that leered at me with such exquisite workmanship. I wish now that I had carefully photographed all these designs, though. Perhaps it's just as well I didn't. Of one thing I am really glad, and that is that I could not identify the squatting octopus-headed thing which dominated most of the ornate cartouches and which the manuscript called Tulu. Recently I have associated it, and the legends in the manuscript connected with it, with some newfound folklore of monstrous and unmentioned Cthulhu, a horror which seeped down from the stars while the young earth was still half-formed, and had I known of the connection then, I could not have stayed in the same room with the thing. The secondary motif, a semi-anthropomorphic serpent, I did quite readily place as a prototype of the Yig, Quetzalcoatl, and Kukulkan conceptions. Before opening the cylinder, I tested its magnetic powers on metals other than that of Grey Eagle's disc but found that no attraction existed. It was no common magnetism which pervaded this morbid fragment of unknown worlds and linked it to its kind. At last I took out the manuscript and began translating, jotting down a synoptic outline in English as I went, and now and then regretting the absence of a Spanish dictionary when I came upon some especially obscure or archaic word or construction. There was a sense of ineffable strangeness and thus being thrown back nearly four centuries in the midst of my continuous quest, thrown back to a year when my own forebears were settled, home-keeping gentlemen of Somerset and Devon under Henry VIII, with never a thought of the adventure that was to take their blood to Virginia and the New World. The sense of a throwback was all the stronger because I felt instinctively that the common problem of the Spaniard and myself was one of such abysmal timelessness, of such unholy and unearthly eternity, that the scant four hundred years between us bulked as nothing in comparison. It took no more than a single look at that monstrous and insidious cylinder to make me realize the dizzying gulfs that yawned between all men of the known earth and the primal mysteries uh, that it represented. Before that gulf, Panfilo de Zamacona and I stood side by side, just as Aristotle and I, or Cheops and I, might have stood. Chapter 3 Of his youth in Laraca, a small placid port on the Bay of Biscay, Zamacona told little. 
He had been a wild and younger son and had come to New Spain in 1532 when only 20 years old. Sensitively imaginative, he had listened spellbound to the floating rumors of rich cities and unknown worlds to the north, and especially to the tale of the Franciscan friar, Marcos de Niza, who came back from a trip in 1539 with glowing accounts of fabulous Cibola and its great walled towns with terraced stone houses. Hearing of Coronado's contemplated expedition in search of these wonders, and of the greater wonders whispered to lie beyond them in the land of the buffaloes, young Zamacona managed to join the picked party of 300 and started north with the rest in 1540. History knows the story of that expedition, how Cibola was found to be merely the squalid Pueblo village of Zuni, and how Deniza was sent back to Mexico in disgrace for his floored exaggerations. How Coronado first saw the Grand Canyon, and how at Cuchilla on the Pecos he heard from the Indian called El Turco of the rich and mysterious land of Quivira, far to the northeast where gold, silver, and buffaloes abounded, and where there flowed a river two leagues wide. Samacona told briefly of the winter camp at Tiguez on the Pecos and of the northward start in April, when the native guide proved false and led the party astray amidst a land of prairie dogs, salt pools, and roving bison-hunting tribes. When Coronado dismissed his larger force and made his final 42-day march with a very small and select detachment, Zamacona managed to be included in the advancing party. He spoke of the fertile country and of the great ravines with trees visible only from the edge of their steep banks, and of how all the men lived solely on buffalo meat. And then came mention of the expedition's farthest limit, of the presumable but disappointing land of Quivera with its villages of grass houses, its brooks and rivers, its good black soil, its plums, nuts, grapes, and mulberries, and its maize-growing and copper-using Indians. The execution of El Turco, the false native guide, was casually touched upon, and there was a mention of the cross which Coronado raised on the bank of a great river in the autumn of 1541, a cross bearing the inscription, Thus far came the great general Francisco Vasquez de Coronado. This supposed Quivira lay about the 40th parallel of north latitude, and I see that quite lately the New York archaeologist Dr. Hodge has identified it with the course of the Arkansas River through Barton and Rice Counties, Kansas. It is the old home of the Wichitas before the Sioux drove them south into what is now Oklahoma, and some of the grass house village sites have been found and excavated for artifacts. Coronado did considerable exploring hereabouts, led hither and thither by the persistent rumors of rich cities and hidden worlds which floated fearfully around on the Indians' tongues. These northerly natives seemed more afraid and reluctant to talk about the rumored cities and worlds than the Mexican Indians had been, and yet at the same time seemed as if they could reveal a good deal more than the Mexicans had they been willing or dared to do so. Their vagueness exasperated the Spanish leader, and after many disappointing searches, he began to be very severe toward those who brought him stories. Zamacona, more patient than Coronado, found the tales especially interesting. 
and learned enough of the local speech to hold long conversations with a young buck named Charging Buffalo, whose curiosity had led him into much stranger places than any of his fellow tribesmen had dared to penetrate. It was Charging Buffalo who told Zamakona of the queer stone doorways, gates, or cave mouths at the bottom of some of those deep, steep wooded ravines which the party had noticed on the northward march. These openings, he said, were mostly concealed by shrubbery, and few had entered them for untold eons. Those who went to where they led never returned, or in a few cases returned mad or curiously maimed. But all this was legend, for nobody was known to have gone more than a limited distance inside any of them, within the memory of the grandfathers of the oldest living men. Charging Buffalo himself had probably been farther than anyone else, and he had seen enough to curb both his curiosity and his greed for the rumored gold below. Beyond the aperture he had entered, there was a long passage running crazily up and down and round about, and covered with frightful carvings of monsters and horrors that no man had ever seen. At last, after untold miles of windings and descents, there was a glow of terrible blue light, and the passage opened upon a shocking nether world. About this the Indian would say no more, for he had seen something that had sent him back in haste. But the golden cities must be somewhere down there, he added, and perhaps a white man with the magic of the thunderstick might succeed in getting them. He would not tell the big chief Coronado what he knew, for Coronado would not listen to Indian talk any more. Yes, he could show Zamacona the way if the white man would leave the party and accept his guidance but he would not go inside the opening with the white man. It was bad in there. The place was about five days' march to the south, near the region of the Great Mounds. These mounds had something to do with the evil world down there. They were probably ancient closed-up passages to it, for once the old ones below had had colonies on the surface and had traded with men everywhere, even in the lands that had sunk under the big waters. It was when these lands had sunk that the old ones closed themselves up below and refused to deal with surface people. The refugees from the sinking places had told them that the gods of outer earth were against men and that no men could survive on the outer earth unless they were demons in league with the evil gods. That's why they shut out all surface folk and did fearful things to any who ventured down where they dwelt. There had been centuries once at the various openings, but... After ages, they were no longer needed. Not many people cared to talk about the hidden old ones, and the legends about them would probably have died out but for certain ghostly reminders of their presence now and then. It seemed that the infinite ancientness of these creatures had brought them strangely near to the borderline of spirit, so that their ghostly emanations were more commonly frequent and vivid. Accordingly, the region of the Great Mounds was often convulsed with spectral nocturnal battles, reflecting those which had been fought in the days before the openings were closed. The old ones themselves were half-ghost indeed. It was said that they no longer grew old or reproduced their kind, but flickered eternally in a state between flesh and spirit. The change was not complete, though, for they had to breathe. It was because the underground world needed air that the openings in the deep valleys were not blocked up as the mound openings on the plains had been. These openings, Charging Buffalo added, were probably based on natural fissures in the earth. It was whispered that the old ones had come down from the stars to the world 
when it was very young and had gone inside to build their cities of solid gold because the surface was not then fit to live on. They were the ancestors of all men, yet none could guess from what star or what place beyond the stars they came. Their hidden cities were still full of gold and silver, but men had better let them alone, less protected by very strong magic. They had frightful beasts with a faint strain of human blood on which they rode and which they employed for other purposes. The things, so people hinted, were carnivorous, and like their masters, preferred human flesh, so that although the old ones themselves did not breed, they had a sort of half-human slave class, which also served to nourish the human and animal population. This had been very oddly recruited, and was supplemented by a second slave class of reanimated corpses. The old ones knew how to make a corpse into an automaton, which would last almost indefinitely and perform any sort of work when directed by streams of thought. Charging Buffalo said that the people had all come to talk by means of thought only, speech having been found crude and needless. Except for religious devotions and emotional expression, as eons of discovery and study rolled by, they worshipped Yig, the great father of serpents, and Tulu, the octopus-headed entity that had brought them down from the stars, Appeasing both of these hideous monstrosities by means of human sacrifices offered up in a very curious manner which Charging Buffalo did not care to describe. Zamakona was held spellbound by the Indian's tale and at once resolved to accept his guidance to the cryptic doorway in the ravine. He did not believe the accounts of strange ways attributed by legend to the hidden people, for the experiences of the party had been such as to disillusion one regarding native myths of unknown lands. But he did feel that some sufficiently marvelous field of riches and adventure must indeed lie beyond the weirdly carved passages in the earth. At first he thought of persuading Charging Buffalo to tell his story to Coronado, offering to shield him against any effects of the leader's testy skepticism. But later he decided that a lone adventure would be better. If he had no aid, he would not have to share anything he found, but might perhaps become a great discoverer and owner of fabulous riches himself. Success would make him a greater figure than Coronado, perhaps, a greater figure than anyone else in New Spain, including even the mighty viceroy Don Antonio de Mendoza. On October 7, 1541, at an hour close to midnight, Zamacona stole out of the Spanish camp near the Grass House village and met Charging Buffalo for the long southward journey. He traveled as lightly as possible and did not wear his heavy helmet and breastplate. Of the details of the trip, the manuscript told very little, but Zamacona records his arrival at the Great Ravine on October 13th. The descent of the thickly wooded slope took no great time, and though the Indian had trouble in locating the shrubbery-hidden stone door again amidst the twilight of that deep gorge, the place was finally found. It was a very small aperture, as doorways go, formed of monolithic sandstone jams and lintel, and bearing signs of nearly effaced and now undecipherable carvings. Its height was perhaps seven feet, and its width not more than four. There were drilled places in the jams which argued the bygone presence of a hinged door or gate, but all other traces of such a thing had long since vanished. At the sight of this black gulf, charging buffalo displayed considerable fear, 
and threw down his pack of supplies with signs of haste. He had provided Zamakona with a good stock of resinous torches and provisions and had guided him honestly and well, but he refused to share in the venture that lay ahead. Zamakona gave him the trinkets he had kept for such an occasion and obtained his promise to return to the region in a month, afterwards showing the way southward to the Pecos Pueblo villages. A prominent rock on the plain above them was chosen as a meeting place, the one arriving first to pitch camp until the other should arrive. In the manuscript, Zamakona expressed a wistful wonder as to the Indian's length of waiting at the rendezvous, for he himself would never keep that tryst. At the last moment, charging buffalo tried to dissuade him from his plunge into the darkness, but soon found it was futile, and gestured a stoical farewell. Before lighting his first torch and entering the opening with his ponderous pack, the Spaniard watched the lean form of the Indian scrambling hastily and rather relievedly upward among the trees. It was the cutting of his last link with the world, though he did not know that he was never to see a human being in the accepted sense of that term again. Zamacona felt no immediate premonition of evil upon entering that ominous doorway, though from the first he was surrounded by a bizarre and unwholesome atmosphere. The passage, slightly taller and wider than the aperture, was for many yards a level tunnel of cyclopean masonry, with heavily worn flagstones underfoot and grotesquely carved granite and sandstone blocks in sides and ceiling. The carvings must have been loathsome and terrible indeed to judge from Zamakona's description, according to which most of them revolved around the monstrous beings Yig and Tulu. They were unlike anything the adventurer had ever seen before, though he added that the native architecture of Mexico came closest to them of all the things in the outer world. After some distance, the tunnel began to dip abruptly, and irregular natural rock appeared on all sides. The passage seemed only partially artificial, and decorations were limited to occasional cartouches with shocking boss reliefs. Following an enormous descent, whose steepness at times produced an acute danger of slipping and tobogganing, the passage became exceedingly uncertain in its direction and variable in its contour. At times it narrowed almost to a slit or grew so low that stooping and even crawling were necessary, while at other times it broadened out into sizable caves or chains of caves. Very little human construction, it was plain, had gone into this part of the tunnel, though occasionally a sinister cartouche or hieroglyph on a wall or a blocked-up lateral passageway would remind Zamakona that this was, in truth, the eon-forgotten high road to a primal and unbelievable world of living things. For three days, as best as he could reckon, Panfilo de Zamakona scrambled down, up, along, and around, but always predominantly downward through this dark region of Pelagian night. Once in a while he heard some secret being of darkness patter or flap out of his way, and on just one occasion he half-glimpsed a great bleached thing that sent him trembling. The quality of the air was mostly very tolerable, though fetid zones were now and then met with while one great cavern of stalactites and stalagmites afforded a depressing dampness. This latter, when charging buffalo had come upon it, had quite seriously barred the way, since the limestone deposits of ages had built fresh pillars in the path of the primordial abyss denizens. 
The Indian, however, had broken through these, so that Zamacona did not find his course impeded. It was an unconscious comfort to him to reflect that someone else from the outside world had been there before, and the Indian's careful descriptions had removed the element of surprise and unexpectedness. More so, charging Buffalo's knowledge of the tunnel had led him to provide so good a torch supply for the journey in and out that there would be no danger of becoming stranded in the darkness. Zamacona camped twice, building a fire whose smoke seemed well taken care of by the natural ventilation. At what he considered the end of the third day, though his cocksure guesswork chronology is not at any time to be given the easy faith that he gave it, Zamacona encountered the prodigious descent and subsequent prodigious climb which Charging Buffalo had described as the tunnel's last phase. As at certain earlier points, marks of artificial improvement were here discernible, and several times the steep gradient was eased by a flight of rough-hewn steps. The torch showed more and more of the monstrous carvings on the walls, and finally the resinous flare seemed mixed with a fainter and more diffusive light as Zamacona climbed up and up after the last downward stairway. At length the ascent ceased, and a level passage of artificial masonry with dark basaltic blocks led straight ahead. There was no need for the torch now for all the air was glowing with a bluish, quasi-electric radiance that flickered like an aura. It was a strange light of the inner world that the Indian had described, and in another moment, Zamacona emerged from the tunnel upon a bleak, rocky hillside, which climbed above him to a seething, impenetrable sky of bluish coruscations, and descended dizzily below him to an apparently illimitable plain shrouded in bluish mist. He had come to the unknown world at last, and from his manuscript it is clear that he viewed the formless landscape as proudly and exaltedly as ever his fellow countryman Balboa viewed the newfound Pacific from that unforgettable peak in Darien. Charging Buffalo had turned back at this point, and driven by fear of something which he would only describe vaguely and evasively as a herd of bad cattle, neither horse nor buffalo, but like the things the mound spirits rode at night. But Zamacona could not be deterred by any such trifle. Instead of fear, a strange sense of glory filled him, for he had imagination enough to know what it meant to stand alone in an inexplicable netherworld whose existence no other white man suspected. The soil of the great hill that surged upward behind him and spread steeply downward below him was dark gray, rock-strewn, without vegetation, and probably basaltic in origin, with an unearthly cast which made him feel like an intruder on an alien planet. The vast distant plain, thousands of feet below, had no features he could distinguish, especially since it appeared to be largely veiled in a curling, bluish vapor. But more than hill or plain or cloud, the bluely luminous, coruscating sky impressed the adventurer with a sense of supreme wonder and mystery. What created the sky within a world he could not tell, though he knew of the northern lights and had even seen them once or twice. He concluded that this subterraneous light was something vaguely akin to the aurora, a view which moderns may well endorse, though it seems likely that certain phenomena or radioactivity may also enter in. At Zamacona's back, the mouth of the tunnel he had traversed, 
yawned darkly, defined by a stone doorway very like the one he had entered in the world above, save that it was of grayish-black basalt instead of red sandstone. There were hideous sculptures, still in good preservation and perhaps corresponding to those on the outer portal, which time had largely weathered away. The absence of weathering here argued a dry, temperate climate. Indeed, the Spaniard already began to note the delightfully spring-like stability of the temperature which marks the air of the North's interior. On the stone jams were works proclaiming the bygone presence of hinges, but of any actual door or gate there was no trace remaining. Seating himself for a rest and thought, Zamacona lightened his pack by removing an amount of food and torches sufficient to take him back through the tunnel. These he proceeded to cache at the opening under a carn hastily formed of the rock fragments which everywhere lay about. Then, readjusting his lightened pack, he commenced his descent toward the distant plain, preparing to invade a region which no living thing of outer earth had penetrated in a century or more, which no white man had ever penetrated, and from which, if legend were to be believed, no organic creature had ever returned sane. Zamacona strode briskly along down the steep, interminable slope, his progress checked at times by the bad walking that came from loose rock fragments or by the excessive precipitousness of the grade. The distance of the mist-shrouded plain must have been enormous, for many hours walking brought him apparently no closer to it than he had been before. Behind him was always the great hill stretching upward into a bright aerial sea of bluish coruscations. Silence was universal, so that his own footsteps in the fall of stones that he dislodged struck on his ears with startling distinctness. It was at what he regarded as about noon that he first saw the abnormal footprints, which set him to thinking of charging Buffalo's terrible hints, precipitate flight, and strangely abiding terror. The rock-strewn nature of the soil gave few opportunities for tracks of any kind, but at one point, a rather level interval had caused the Luke's detritus to accumulate in a ridge, leaving a considerable area of dark gray loam absolutely bare. Here, in a rambling confusion, indicating a large herd aimlessly wandering, Zamacona found the abnormal prints. It is to be regretted that he could not describe them more exactly, but the manuscript displayed far more vague fear than accurate observation. Just what it was that so frightened the Spaniard can only be inferred from his later hints regarding the beasts. He referred to the prince as not hooves, not hands, nor feet, nor precisely paws, nor so large as to cause alarm on that account. Just why or how long ago the things had been there was not easy to guess. There was no vegetation visible, hence grazing was out of the question, but of course if the beasts were carnivorous they might well have been hunting smaller animals whose tracks their own would tend to obliterate. Glancing backwards from this plateau to the heights above, Zamacona thought he detected traces of a great winding road which had once led from the tunnel downwards to the plain. One could get the impression of this former highway only from a broad panoramic view since a trickle of loose rock fragments had long ago obscured it but the adventurer felt none the less certain that it existed. It had not probably been an elaborately paved trunk route, for the small tunnel it reached seemed scarcely like a main avenue to the outer world. In choosing a straight path of descent, Zamacona had not followed its curving course, 
though he must have crossed it once or twice. With his attention now called to it, he looked ahead to see if he could trace it downward toward the plain, and this he finally thought he could do. He resolved to investigate its surface when next he crossed it, and perhaps to pursue its line for the rest of the way if he could distinguish it. Having resumed his journey, Zamakona came some time later upon what he thought was a bend in the ancient road. There were signs of grading and some primal attempt at rock surfacing, but not enough was left to make the route worth following. While rummaging about in the soil with his sword, the Spaniard turned up something that glittered in the eternal blue daylight and was thrilled to behold a kind of coin or metal of a dark, unknown, lustrous metal with hideous designs on each side. It was utterly and bafflingly alien to him, and from his description I have no doubt it was a duplicate of the talisman given to me by Grey Eagle almost four centuries afterwards. Pocketing it after a long and curious examination, he strode onward, finally pitching camp at an hour which he guessed to be the evening in the outer world. The next day, Zamakona rose early and resumed his descent through this blue-litten world of mist and desolation and preternatural silence. As he advanced, he at last became able to distinguish a few objects on the distant plain below. Trees, bushes, rocks, and a small river that came into view from the right and curved forward at a point to the left of his contemplated course. This river seemed to be spanned by a bridge connected with the descending roadway, and with care the explorer could trace the route of the road beyond it in a straight line over the plain. Finally, he even thought he could detect towns scattered along the rectilinear ribbon, towns whose left-hand edges reached the river and sometimes crossed it. Where such crossings occurred, he saw as he descended, there were always signs of bridges, either ruined or surviving. He was now in the midst of sparse grassy vegetation and saw that below him the growth became thicker and thicker. The road was easier to define now since its surface discouraged the grass which the looser soil supported. Rock fragments were less frequent and the barren upward vista behind him looked bleak and forbidding in contrast to his present milieu. It was on this day that he saw the blurred mass moving over the distant plain since his first sight of the sinister footprints, he had met with no more of these, but something about that slowly and deliberately moving mass peculiarly sickened him. Nothing but a herd of grazing animals could move just like that, and after seeing the footprints, he did not wish to meet the things which had made them. Still, the moving mass was not near the road, and his curiosity and greed for fabled gold were great. Besides, who could really judge things from vague, jumbled footprints or from the panic-twisted hints of an ignorant Indian? And straining his eyes to view the moving mass, Zamakona became aware of several other interesting things. One was that certain parts of the now unmistakable towns glittered oddly in the misty blue light. Another was that besides the towns, several similarly glittering structures of a more isolated sort were scattered here and there along the road and over the plain. They seemed to be embowered in clumps of vegetation, and those off the road had small avenues leading to the highway. No smoke or other signs of life could be discerned about any of the towns or buildings. Finally, Zamakona saw that the plain was not infinite in extent. 
though the half-concealing blue mists had hitherto made it seem so. It was bounded in the remote distance by a range of low hills toward a gap in which the river and roadway seemed to lead. All this, especially the glittering of certain pinnacles in the towns, had become very vivid when Zamacona pitched his second camp amidst the endless blue day. He likewise noticed the flocks of high-soaring birds whose nature he could not clearly make out. The next afternoon, to use the language of the outer world as the manuscript did at all times, Zamacona reached the silent plain and crossed the soundless, slow-running river on a curiously carved and fairly well-preserved bridge of black basalt. The water was clear and contained large fishes of a wholly strange aspect. The roadway was now paved and somewhat overgrown with weeds and creeping vines, and its course was occasionally outlined by small pillars bearing obscure symbols. On every side the grassy level extended, with here and there a clump of trees or shrubbery, and with unidentifiable bluish flowers growing irregularly over the whole area. Now and then some spasmodic motion of the grass indicated the presence of serpents. In the course of several hours the traveler reached a grove of old and alien-looking evergreen trees, which he knew from distant viewing protected one of the glittering roofed isolated structures. Amidst the encroaching vegetation, he saw the hideously sculptured pylons of a stone gateway leading off the road, and was presently forcing his way through briars above a moss-crusted, tessellated walk lined with huge trees and low monolithic pillars. At last, in this hushed green twilight, he saw the crumbling and ineffably ancient facade of a building, a temple he had no doubt. It was a mass of nauseous bas-reliefs depicting scenes and beings and objects and ceremonies which could certainly have no place on this or any sane planet. In hinting of these things, Zamacona displays for the first time that shocked and pious hesitancy which impairs the informative value of the rest of his manuscript. We cannot help regretting that the Catholic ardor of Renaissance Spain had so thoroughly permeated his thought and feeling. The door of the place stood wide open, and absolute darkness filled the windowless interior. Conquering the repulsion which the mural sculptures had excited, Zamacona took out flint and steel and lit a resinous torch, pushed aside curtaining vines and sallied boldly across the ominous threshold. For a moment he was quite stupefied by what he saw. It was not the all-covering dust and cobwebs of immemorial eons, the fluttering winged things, the shriekingly loathsome sculptures on the walls, the bizarre form of the many basins and braziers, the sinister pyramidal altar with the hollow top or the monstrous octopus-headed abnormality in some strange dark metal leering and squatting broodingly on its hieroglyph pedestal, which robbed him of even the power to give a startled cry. It was nothing so unearthly as this, but merely the fact that, with the exception of the dust, the cobwebs, the winged things, and the gigantic emerald-eyed idol, every particle of substance in sight was composed of pure and evidently solid gold. <laughs>